podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Chris Black, who is a longtime donor and friend to CEW and is a current member of the CEW Plus Leadership Council. Chris worked for many years as an administrator in research development support at the University of Michigan Medical School, serving as a teacher and mentor for researchers developing and funding their projects. She specializes in helping early career faculty develop projects and win their first grant from the National Institute of Health. She holds a bachelor's and a master's of library sciences from the University of Michigan and has a CEW scholarship endowment in her own name. Chris, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself uh, to the audience and tell them a little bit about your story? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to, and it's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Tiffany. Um, well, my career was, as really, as, as you mentioned, in the field of proposal development. And I didn't know I was going to end up in that career. I started out in Fairfax County, Virginia Public Schools as a media design specialist. And then when I moved to Ann Arbor, I started working at the dental school as an instructional design specialist. And we had a a video studio in the dental school. And so it was a really exciting place to be. But one day a faculty member came up to me and said, you know, you should really produce a video to encourage women to go into dentistry. And I said, well, that's a great idea, but, you know, who's going to fund it? And they said, she said, well, write a grant. And, of course, I'd never written a grant before, but, you know, I got into it. I talked to a lot of people. I consulted a lot of people. And so the first of four grants that were funded was the Women in Science video series. And it was a series of instructional videos that encouraged women to consider science and technology careers. After the work of that grant ended, um, instead of writing my own grant proposals, I went into what is now known as research development. And it is a field that's growing. And the purpose of the field is to help faculty get funded. And so we help faculty find funding opportunities, plan projects, write and edit proposals, And then it morphed into doing a lot of training. So throughout my career at the university, I trained a lot of faculty and staff in how to write competitive grant proposals. And so I left the dental school. I worked in central research at Michigan. I worked at the nursing school for a while. And then my last eight years or so, eight or nine years, were at the medical school. And really the culminating activity before I retired was to develop a mentoring academy for young faculty members to get their first Research One grant proposal, very competitive R01 grant proposal from the National Institutes of Health. So that's pretty much how I serendipitously fell into the field of grant proposal writing. And since I have retired, I have been working for the Grantsmanship Center in Los Angeles And I do a lot of training on grant proposal writing. And our audience is mainly nonprofits, 
a lot of municipalities like towns and cities and states and some universities. And so I'm feeling really fortunate uh, since the pandemic. I've been doing it via Zoom, but I feel really fortunate to be able to keep uh, really my finger in the field. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Yeah, I remember when I was in graduate school at U of M, a friend and I were like, what is this grant writing thing? And it was at Rackham in one of those rooms on the second floor. And you were the facilitator for it. You were the trainer for it. And we just sat there both as first-gen students thinking, oh, my God, we can actually apply for funding. Like, that never occurred to us that there were sources of funding beyond just, like, what we knew within the school bounds. And it was this life-shattering moment of, we could actually do this. And uh, so, you know, you changed my trajectory just by opening my world to new potential and not, you know, recognizing where there are opportunity that, you know, I never would have known about. Uh, you know, so so <laughs> when looking at um, your work, what do you enjoy most about working with faculty early in their career? And what is particularly difficult about securing a first grant from NIH? What really excites me about working with young faculty is the fact that they're so eager and bright and motivated to make a difference in their field, and yet they're faced with tremendous challenges. I mean, the biggest challenge is time management, where a lot of them are responsible for teaching, and some of them do research, and then there's always the pressure to do writing, and then there's an expectation to do some service work and some administrative work. And on top of all that, they have to balance it with managing a lot of outside commitments in their life, and things are really competitive. And so I admire them so much for persevering this academic career because there's a lot of reward to it, but there's a lot of obstacles. And so I always felt that if anything I could do to help help them succeed was, you know, that's what I was there for. And in terms of National Institutes of Health Funding, I think many faculty members have obtained uh, fellowships or smaller grants, but the real cherry is to get an R01 grant, which is a Research One Program grant, and that is very difficult to obtain, and yet it's really important. I mean, it is important for young faculty members in biomedicine to obtain tenure, really, and also to maintain tenure. And it's about $250,000 a year for five years, so it's a big grant. And the funding rate is from 15 to 20%. So that means that only one of five proposals that's submitted is going to get funded. And by the time a young faculty member, at least in medicine, gets funded, they're the average age is 42 years, and it takes a long time for them to get funded. So when I was at the medical school, the administration decided that we really needed to work on a program to help these young faculty members get their first R01. And so I developed along, certainly with consulting and the help of my colleagues, the R01 boot camp, which was a mentoring academy. And the main components were that young faculty members worked in teams of approximately six faculty members. And these teams provided not only peer review of each other's work, but also peer support. And the teams could be from different, certainly from different departments. And in fact, I think the diversity was really uh, good for them. 
but they, there was something about their research that had some commonality. And each team was coached by a senior faculty member who was well-funded, had experience not only writing successful R01 grant applications, but also reviewing them. And so the senior faculty member would meet with them and encourage them and give them insight as to whether or not they thought they were actually ready to submit an R01. And a few of them actually were not ready. They thought they were ready. Their chairs thought they were ready, but in fact, they uh, didn't have the idea solidified enough or they didn't have enough preliminary studies or pilot data. And we also provided other resources. We provided proposal writing seminar, mock reviews. We provided internal subject matter experts, external subject matter experts. And so it was a really comprehensive program to provide all the support they needed. And we tried to keep them on a timeline too, in light of the fact that they had other commitments. And so the expectation was that within 12 months of starting the program, we would expect them to submit their first R01. And it was a very successful pilot. I think eventually at least half of them obtained R01s. Many of them, of course, had to resubmit their first proposal, which is what most people do when they apply for an R01. You get the reviewer's feedback, and then you have an opportunity to revise your proposal and send it in. And that's typically when they're going to get funded is in the uh, resubmission. But the R01 was successful. I mean, the R01 boot camp was successful, and it does continue now. It's open beyond the medical school now, so faculty members from all schools can participate in the R01 boot camp. And I'm really glad that it's done so well, and I'm, I'm happy to see so many people benefit from it. Yeah, 50% receiving an R01, that's pretty amazing uh, track record for you. Were there any stepping stones to an R01, or was everyone encouraged to just go for the R01 right out of the gates? No, actually, they all had to be recommended by their chairs or their associate chair for research as being ready to submit an R01, because there are there are smaller grants that are easier to get, and, some, and the smaller grants often are stepping stones to applying for a larger R01. There are not only NIH grants that are smaller that would help them, for example, get their preliminary data together or develop a pilot or develop a technique or some aspect of the scientific method that they needed to work on. But there also were a lot of foundation proposals, for example, that were stepping stones. And so most of them, I would say the majority of, majority of them had been funded with smaller grants along the way. And then, of course, there were some internal grants at the University of Michigan, too, that helped young faculty members get started. And so almost all of the members of the R01 boot camp had some funding prior to submitting their first R01. Yeah, it sounds like a really great program and so good to see it continuing in high-quality ways. Um, uh -huh. you you had mentioned uh, early in your career that you developed several award-winning videos to inspire young women to pursue careers in STEM, um, science and technology, engineering and math. Have you seen a shift in the trends around women in STEM over the years? And where are there still areas for growth? Right. Well, 
in some areas, I think they've done really well. For example, in dental school now, I think something like 56% of dental students are women. So that's really encouraging. And I think half of all medical students now are women. So that hasn't translated yet into the workforce. I mean, I think that the percentage of female dentists in the workforce is lower. It's maybe 35%. Maybe the percentage of physicians in the workforce that are women is about 37%. But, you know, eventually the fact that so there are so many students in the field, that's going to eventually, I think, impact the uh, workforce. But there's other areas like engineering that is not doing as well. Unfortunately, engineering and computer science are probably still lagging the most. Engineering, I think 16% of the workforce are women, and in computer science, it's about 25%, something like that. So there's definitely still areas where women, I think, need additional mentoring and opportunities to succeed. The good news is that I know a lot of people are paying attention to this and that women are continue to be encouraged to pursue these fields, but I know it's it's a real challenge. Yeah, the pipeline increase in dentistry, that's a great boost mm-hmm. from before. I remember in the 90s I was doing research on women in STEM, and it was much lower than that at that point. Um, you know, when you think about the fields that you identified as still not being proportionate uh, by gender, what did, what what could we do in the pipeline? Uh, you'd mentioned mentorship and uh, support. What might that look like? When you look at successful programs, there are some programs that have been successful in encouraging women to go into uh, computer science and engineering. I think that some of these programs, for example, don't require this weeding out first couple of classes, these classes that are crazy hard. Instead, they break them up into more palatable, you know, classes that whoever takes the course can feel more, can build their confidence as they master the material. For undergraduate students, I think what really is a good idea is to have a research experience. So I know that the University of Michigan has a Europe program, the um, Undergraduate Research Opportunity Program, and there are universities around the country that have these kind of programs. So I think that, you know, as much as possible, young women who are intending to go into any of these fields should certainly try to do research. And I think that, especially as an undergrad, they should start, I think, becoming familiar with the literature in their field. Let's say they're in engineering. And whenever they can read journals in their field and try to develop an area of interest where they really seek out more knowledge because this is, it seems some way or or another relevant to what their interests are. I think that's a good idea to become familiar with how research is done in their field, how people write about their field and edit whenever possible. Uh, uh, Undergraduates could certainly volunteer to do some editing for a faculty member. And I think that's a really good idea to gain skills in writing. I would try to do teamwork as much as possible. I think that's really important to become comfortable, perhaps being the only woman on a team and to become comfortable gaining the respect of people who are not your own gender on the team. 
And I, I think that that's also a really good idea. And for young faculty members, I would certainly try to identify a mentor on the faculty. That would be somebody who could give a lot of advice and answer questions, perhaps help the young faculty member develop some networking. And then I would look for opportunities that match the interests of the faculty member. And again, I think for young faculty members, time management is really crucial. And so they have to learn how to say no if they're being asked to, for example, co-author a article and it's not really an article or to help in some research endeavor and it's not really a field that they're interested in, then I think they should feel free to say no. And so, and just kind of focus on those areas that are going to help them get tenure. Yeah, that's great advice. I'm very appreciative that you've been involved with CEW for many years, um, both as a leadership council member and as a donor. What drew you to the center and how does it connect to your work with early career faculty and around STEM? Well, my first introduction to CEW was when I was an undergraduate and I was trying to get a double major and a secondary teacher certificate in four years. And so in order to do that, I had to take an extra summer semester and I hadn't budgeted for that. So I remember going up to the window to pay my tuition and I said to the woman standing behind the window, you know, this is how much I can pay. I can't pay it all. I think I've exhausted all my resources. And I, you know, I'm not sure where to go. And she said, you know what, you should just walk over to Thompson Street and just visit CEW and see if they can help you. And so I did, and I went to this little office, the original CEW office on Thompson Street. Uh -huh. and, um, I even saw Dean Campbell there. And they actually were able to give me a grant to make up the balance of the amount of tuition that I was unable to pay. And so that's how I got started. I've always been grateful to CEW. And then later, when I was producing the Women in Science video series, I went to CEW, and they had, at that point, a Women in Science program. And Barbara Sloat, who taught mm -hmm. biology at the residential college, was actually the director of the Women in Science program at CEW. And so I, we had a very good collegial relationship. She helped me with some of the content of the videos and the supporting materials. And so that was, again, another association with CEW. And actually, through that work of the Women in Science uh, video series, we attended a number of meetings and conferences, and we got to know a woman named Shirley Malcolm, who was in charge of the Women in Science and Engineering program at uh, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, uh, AAAS. And so we had gone to some meetings with her, and we decided to have a meeting in Ann Arbor. So to my knowledge, it was the first national women in science meeting uh, in the country. And it was sponsored a lot by AAAS, but in fact, it was held in Ann Arbor. And so uh, Barbara and I were both, um, uh, you know, helped work on that, pulled that together. And then through the rest of my career at the University of Michigan, I gave a number of workshops at CEW. but 
I would say what led to my greatest association with CEW is about, I guess it was about eight years ago, my husband gave me a gift for Christmas, and I opened up the gift, and it was a scholarship in my name, a CEW scholarship in my name, and I was absolutely speechless, and I remember opening up the gift, and I just started to cry, and the other people no. said, what's wrong? What's wrong? You know, what is it? Uh-huh. I could hardly even talk. I was, I mean, it was really the most meaningful gift, obviously, that I've ever gotten, and that's all, you know, a credit to her black, my husband, and then, so I've been involved in um, the scholarship activities of CEW+, and now I'm really grateful to be on the leadership council, so that's kind of the history of my association with CEW. That's an amazing connection you've had over the years. I had no idea that you found CEW uh, so early on at U of M. That's amazing. They really came to my rescue. I don't know what I would have done if I couldn't have paid my tuition. But thank God I got that semester in, and I did graduate in four years, so I was pretty happy about that. Oh, yeah, that's that's impressive to get your credential and your bachelor's at the same time in four (laughs) years. That's really something. Uh, You know, what advice do you have for listeners who are still students or early in their academic careers and hoping to launch themselves into faculty roles, particularly in STEM fields? What would you what would you say to them or encouragement? Well, I think that they should certainly seek out. There's so many supportive organizations now for women and uh, any field of science, uh, for example, women in engineering. And if if a young woman is feeling starting out in her, let's say, undergraduate or graduate studies and feeling pretty isolated, I think that it would be a great idea to try to join an organization like that where you know if nothing else, you're going to get some support and you can talk about your frustrations and do some problem solving with people who are of a like mind. And then again, really think that getting involved with research early is so important. You learn so much. You learn a lot about the scientific method. You learn a lot about the competition of writing a grant proposal and what makes good science and what does not make good science. And again, you get the experience of working in teams. You get to work with either a fellow or a faculty member and get their insight and probably their support and start your networking. I don't think it's too early ever to start networking in your field. And then again, for young faculty, I just think you need to learn what it takes to get tenure in your department. What, what do they really value about your time to get tenure in your department? And then if they really value teaching, publication, and research, and you know that you have to do some service work, you know that you have to do some administrative work, but try to prioritize what's really important. Again, learn how to say no. You, there are some people you can't say no to, right? You probably would find it difficult to say no to your chair. But again, if it's a colleague who just wants you to collaborate in some extra work because it will help them, but it really doesn't help you, then I think you have to learn how to say no. And again, I think mentors are important. I don't think they're absolutely essential. I think there's a lot of successful faculty people who 
have not had to rely on a mentor, so I wouldn't feel bad if, you know, you, you're at a place where you just can't identify this mentor. But I think that if you can still develop relationships for finding out what makes success in your career, networking, it could be that your first funding opportunity might be as a collaborator. And so, again, developing these collegial relationships and co-authoring, at least if, if you are having trouble authoring, being a first or, uh, author, and you get an opportunity to work on an article that's related to what you're doing, I would start out that way. And then just obviously you need to develop your own field of real precise expertise within in your area. But your first publications, of course, can be co-authored, and, and that's great. And that will just – your goal is to be the first author in as many publications as you can be first author in. So prioritizing your activities and your time and just focusing on those things that are help, going to help you get tenure. Yeah, good advice for everybody to set clear boundaries and know what the priorities are and work towards those very intentionally. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been very um, informative and uh, very interesting to learn about your trajectory and how many people you've helped over the course of your career to launch their careers and to develop professionally. It's, it's astounding. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.